Hey guys, welcome to episode 77 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're doing well. These, of course, are difficult times, and we hope that listening to our stories of murder and chaos are bringing some peace into your lives. <laughs> and for some of you, our neighbors. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Well, that's mostly on Patreon. We've really covered the story of our neighbors who we so believe are having an affair. So <laughs> Patreon yeah. supporters know what we're talking about. <laughs> so we decided today that we just wanted to bring you an ad-free episode where there's no interruptions, just us telling the story and you guys surviving a pandemic. Yeah, you know. You know, simple doesn't, stuff. Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> But we don't want to start without giving a huge thank you to all of our amazing listeners who gave us great reviews on all of their podcast listening platforms. What I've been doing is taking screenshots of the reviews and putting them up on our Instagram stories and then saving them. So it's like just our way of recognizing you guys all for taking the time to say something nice. Because I know it is a pain in the butt to write those reviews, but they really do help us out. They do. So we also want to thank all of our amazing new Patreons, who we are going to name at the end of this episode. Um, We've had such a jump over the past two months, and it's really been amazing. We're like riding high on that and... We're just so grateful. Yeah, we are. And it's it's great. It's just great to always just see new names come in and just see the overwhelming appreciation. It's it's unbelievable. So right. thank you guys. And we're just building our Patreon family, which is a fun thing to do. So if you want to join Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash true crime couple. And what's there for you is 24 Patreon episodes, stickers, and of course, some extra content. And that 25th episode is going to be coming up this Friday. So are you ready for this story, John? I'm ready. Let's go. Stucco Lake lies within the Lake Ontario drainage basin in the municipality of Tweed in Hastings County, Ontario. The calm three-and-a-half-mile lake has one bay tucked away in its northwest corner. This area is known as the Settlement of Cozy Cove. Isn't that just like the most adorable name for a bay, like in a nice, calm lake? Yeah, like Cozy, like, I, I would like to bring you there. That would be a place where I would take you and oh, like, wow. have a nice you. day with you. But Maybe after this episode, not. Probably but, not. Okay. <laughs> That's like when we were, like, we're in the process of looking for homes which, you know, like we really still can't afford, but we just like looking. (laughs) And there was one house we really liked. It was on Winding Way. And I was like, oh my God, that would be so adorable. But massive flood insurance. So we decided Yeah, I don't feel like floating away. Yeah, I like the rain. I don't want to hate it. exactly. Or just needing FEMA to come get me in a lifeboat. Not in the mood. Not in the mood for that. So, but I really, I like the name, even though like there's something a little sinister to something so overly sweet. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It reminded me a little bit of that sci-fi channel. Remember, like, Channel Zero, Candle Cove? You know... The man with the teeth. I do remember, but that show weirded me out. Like It, it, it was, got real weird. It was overly weird. Like, I know, but I loved it. I you got too weirded out I by was it. weirded out by it after a while. John left after a few episodes. <laughs> I stayed. <laughs> okay, so back to Cozy Cove. It's a charming section of Tweed that hugs around the lake with its dirt roads and beautiful bungalows. The families that call Cozy Cove home are all close. They're there for each other and welcoming to new members of their community. They have block parties and barbecues in the summer and holiday get-togethers in the winter. It's truly an ideal place to call home. But the peace on the lake was shattered in the summer of 2009 when the community learned that there was a man breaking into homes and sexually assaulting females. And it only seemed 
like he was escalating. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Okay, so I want to set the scene of this community, as it's going to be a large part of the story that I'm going to tell you. So Cozy Cove, the bay of Lake Stucco, is shaped almost like a heart. And the community of Cozy Cove consists mainly of three roads. So think of the roads like an upside-down U encasing the heart. The road that is on top, above the humps of the heart, is called Sulfide Road. The street on the left of the heart is called Canada Lane, and it runs adjacent to the Trans-Canadian Trail. And both of those streets are mainly woods, with a few houses, but not too many, like not more than three. The street that we will be focusing on today is aptly called Cozy Cove Lane. It's Cozy Cove Lane that has all the nicely kept homes, with manicured lawns and shady backyards. Each home that's on the side of the lake has a long dock that stretches far out into it. Beautiful lush forests cover the other two streets of the bay. And I mean, honestly, it just seems like the ideal community, the perfect place to live. I mean, yeah, it sounds great. I mean, uh, I personally, I don't really like uh, like lake communities, but it seems like a nice place to visit. Though. Still water freaks you out. You know what it is? <laughs> I know there's no sharks in that. But I still won't want to go in there. There's no sharks in a lake. Listen, no, no, I know. That's why I said I know that. But my, th- no, no, seriously, you have a fear of open water. No, I have a fear of water that I can't see into. Okay, it's so bad to the point where I won't jump into a lake to swim because I'm afraid snapping turtles are gonna come up and get me. Yeah, but like, then why did you mention sharks? <laughs> well, because make any sense. oh no, no 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 listen because like I understand snakes, snapping turtles, but. All right. Listen, the shark I'm afraid of the turtle slamming turtles in the lakes. Okay. And I'm afraid of the sharks out in the open ocean. Hate it. Okay. I mean, so, the sharks completely understand. Snapping turtles, pretty aggressive. I do I mean, get I that. I don't want to lose a finger. Then I can't edit the episodes. <laughs> that is very true. We do need all of your fingers intact. I know. And, for and, I, know, and I know to everybody else is going to sound ridiculous, but that's just how I feel. But anyway. No, I mean, I, can, I think that's completely rational. Some people are lake people. Some people aren't. I'm just not a water person. You do not like the water. I get it. (laughs) So now that we have a location mapped out for you, let's do the same with the families that live there. By 2009, a strong communal unit had been formed by those that lived around the lake. Now, it's important to note here that um, a lot of these like bungalow little cottages, they were weekend homes for a lot of people. And for some, for like half the street lived there full time and half the street only came on the weekends. So the newest addition to the lane was a family of four, the Murdochs. Ron Murdoch was a truck driver who had met his wife, Monique, 17 years ago at his favorite truck stop, where she worked as a waitress. So the couple had gotten married and had two children, a girl, Miranda, who was 14, and a boy, Cameron, who was 16. Everyone always commented that the family was very friendly and pretty tight-knit. They would go on bike rides and hikes together. And it was also said that Miranda and Cameron were very close. Now, by 2009, the Murdochs, even though they're still considered the new family on the block, they had been living there for two years and they were full-time residents. Next door to the Murdochs was Brian. Brian was the self-proclaimed mayor of Cozy Cove. He had been in the community the longest as he grew up in the house that he lived in. 
Next to Brian lived the Fullers, who were a quiet family of four, but always came around to the various block parties, holiday get-togethers, or game nights. So they kept to themselves, but they were a little involved. That's pretty cool. On the other side of the Murdochs was the Williams family that only consisted of husband Russell and wife Mary. Russell was in the Air Force and Mary worked as a director at the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. As they were close in ages, the Murdochs and the Williams gravitated towards each other and they often shared their weekends together. A few doors down was Sarah Massacotti and her boyfriend. The couple was known for always fighting and most members of the lane heard the fights but really kind of wanted to stay out of it. Cozy Cove Lane was just like any other suburban street. You had neighbors you were friends with, neighbors that were annoying, people that liked to keep to themselves, and others that fought all the time. But there was something a little off about the lane. Two years prior, in the summer of 2007, when the Murdochs had first moved in, Monique Murdoch noticed that something strange was happening in her home. In July, while doing the laundry, she realized that her daughter had some underwear that was missing. Okay, so I know that may seem strange. Like, how does she know definitely that underwear is missing? Like, does she count her daughter's underwear? But um, at the time, her daughter was 12 years old. So Monique had bought her those underwear that say like the days of the week on them. Okay. And several days were missing. So that's how she knew they were missing. Okay. All right. Yes. So Monique's mind immediately went to worst case scenario as I'm sure it does for most mothers. Her daughter had been spending a lot of time on the internet and she had heard that there was a lot of predators online. Had one gotten to her daughter? Remember, this is like circa 2007 where all of this kind of like internet predators was like new. So parents were very paranoid about it. So that's what she was worried about that like or she was just talking to a boy and that he had asked like she was nervous that her daughter was sexually active at 12 years old which would make any mother nervous so the family was always close and after talking to her husband monique chose to just ask her daughter what had been happening so she told her daughter that she was missing four days of the week (laughs) i know it sounds funny but but that's a lot of pairs that is like obviously stuff always goes missing in the laundry but like four days that's a lot yeah i mean to that's lose... the majority of the week yeah i mean to lose monday through friday uh it's pretty bad yeah <laughs> but that's five days john oh well whatever i can't do math monday but, 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 but you know what i mean i, know what you I mean. mean honestly it's a whole it would week be almost gone I, I mean you know there's times you know that happens to me and i get upset too you always lose socks. I lose socks. I should clarify. I don't lose yeah. my underwear. And my underwear does not have days on it. <laughs> I, it's, let's clarify that. But I do lose socks sometimes. And I don't know where they go. I have no idea. I like work socks. No out. one's listening. They're just thinking of you with days of the week Stop underwear. it. Stop it. I'm letting people into my life too much. Now they're going to think I'm weird. <laughs> I think it's that okay. has been checked for both of us okay. at this point. That's true. So she asked her daughter what was happening and is everything okay? So Miranda denied knowing anything about her missing underwear, and she swore to her mother that she didn't know what was going on. So she's just like, Mom, I absolutely have no idea what happened to four days of the week. So although this seems strange, especially after the family just moved in, they continue on with their lives. And over the next few years, bringing us back to 2009, things like this happened about three more times to the Murdochs. There was missing underwear of Miranda's, but never as many pairs as the first incident. So the family wrote this off as clothing just kind of going missing in the wash or maybe from sleepovers, like she left some clothes over somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the most acceptable, you know, theory to come up with at that point, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, because you would think it's 
insanity that someone would break into your house and, and like steal your daughter's underwear who's 12 yeah yes yes but all of this changed one night when miranda called out for her parents when they got to her room she told them that she thought someone had been in her room while she was sleeping they checked her room and didn't notice anything strange her window had been open but the family who lived in a one-story bungalow meaning everyone's on the first floor often slept with their windows open and their front door unlocked And for the first time, they felt unsafe in their small community. Miranda said that she thought she had caught the tail end of someone leaving out of her window. Now, this is 2007? This is 2009 now. Okay. So now she's 14 years old. See, to me, I mean, even, you know, in today's standards, I mean, I don't know anybody that goes to bed with their windows open or their doors unlocked. And I feel like, you know, even 2009, I mean, that's crazy to me. It is. But like, if you were to just look at Cozy Cove on a map, you would see how unbelievably isolated they are. And that really the only people around them, the only people are those that they know, their neighbors. So they do feel completely comfortable with it. It's kind of that like in the woods living feeling. That's true. But I feel like at the same time. Oh, no, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) But I'm just saying. Like knowing us, like we're weird. So we would probably always keep it locked regardless if there was like one person in the town yeah if i could put like bars over my window i would but it's it looks weird of course (laughs) i'm so nervous about everything (laughs) but after they checked their house for an intruder and they locked everything up for the first time the family felt a little bit better about things i mean there was no visible evidence that someone was in there so they thought maybe miranda could have been on the tail end of a dream that's also true yeah i mean she's still young so So the incident really rattled the family, and to make matters worse, there was an article in the local paper reporting that a woman who lived a quarter mile away on Cedar Street had been sexually assaulted within her home in the middle of the night on September 17, 2009. The paper said that the assailant had climbed through the first floor window, sounds a little familiar, and tied the young mother to a chair. She was blindfolded and her hands were tied together. He took pictures of her while taking her clothes off and sexually assaulted her. And after the attack, he left. See, that's crazy. So talk about, right, small town. It doesn't really matter, right? I mean, this guy's breaking into houses, so. Right. I think that everyone says, you know, not in this town. We're so close. But I mean, inevitably, it's every town where you're going to find something like this taking place. But this was pretty jarring to a community where crime was virtually non-existent because it is such a small population. I mean, we're, and we're talking about rape, too. We're talking about breaking and entering, rape. Yeah. I well, mean, it was just a sexual assault, so they never used the word rape. So what ah. I'm thinking is that it was, um, if penetration was done, it was an inanimate object. Okay. This first victim never comes out and says what her name is and what happens that night. So this whole event is kept very quiet. Okay. So we know the least amount of details about this attack. Still pretty bad, though. I mean, Um, yeah. And there was photos taken, you said, too? Yes, lots of photos taken. What kind of the MO is here is that, you know, she's going to be forced to model her own lingerie. And um, he would take pictures in various states of undress and um, in various outfits. So the attacks do take hours, but he did spare the woman her life and left. I mean, at least she's alive to talk about it. Right, and to yeah. and to raise her daughter. And... Right, right. So the residents of Cozy Cove Lane were very concerned. Violence like this had never happened near them before, and they were shocked to hear about it. 
Through having conversations on the shores of the lake, the Murdochs learned that two other families also believed that someone had broken into their home on the lane as well. So they were thinking, okay, maybe someone had been breaking into our house and stealing the underwear from Miranda. But there wasn't anything missing from the other homes, and the families couldn't prove that someone had broken in, so they chose also not to call the police. But now, for the first time, they're discussing it as a kind of a community, and they're realizing, oh my god, someone has been victimizing families on the cove. Yeah, and actually, if you think about it too, like, I mean, how many, oh, that was a, l- a little stretch of time where- Two years. Right, where things were missing, things were just misplaced. If you think about it, right- you can't recall every object in your house and exactly what place it's in. No, no. I tried. You know, you always envision what your place is always like all the time, but things could be moved and you wouldn't really recognize it, right? Especially I know, that's if it's so scary. something like something small, you wouldn't know. I know that's terrifying. Right? <laughs> well, thank you, John. I mean, that's what that's what terrifies me. So, <laughs> so Ron Murdoch was growing very concerned. The assault and the break-in was really taking a toll on his family, specifically his wife and daughter. Miranda is having nightmares and has spent nights sleeping in the bedroom with her parents. And now he had heard there had been more break-ins. He chose to get all the men of the street together and talk about what had taken place. Everyone stated that they were concerned. And Ron Murdoch and Russell Williams both stated that they would do harm to whoever hurt their family. Um, What Ron Murdoch is going to do is he's actually going to put motion sensor lights in his on his house so he felt like that would make everyone feel a little bit better to know that like okay if someone's approaching my house a light's gonna go on and he's gonna put it by his daughter's bedroom window as well it's smart yeah but there was one resident of the cove that was not in any of the conversations that took place and that was 46 year old Lori Masicotti. She had just months prior broken up with her boyfriend and she was taking things pretty harshly. So she just wanted to stay in. Now, she is a mother of three, but she shares custody um, with the father of those children. So she sometimes has her kids with her and she sometimes doesn't. She was never one for interacting much with the neighbors, though. Um, And this was especially because her and her boyfriend were always fighting. So she knew that her neighbors heard her and him fighting all the time. So she kind of wanted to stay away from them all. And this is one reason why she had no clue about the attack that had taken place so close to her house. So not only did she not know about the three break-ins, three families that had said they had been getting break-ins for several years, but she also didn't know about the first attack on the woman on Cedar Street. And it's also the reason why she slept with her windows open on September 30th, 2009. Now, Lori is a woman after all of our own hearts because she always falls asleep to the same two television programs, Law & Order, which airs at 11 p.m., and Missing Without a Trace, which starts at midnight. Those are great shows. Those are great shows. I love those. Yes. So she's she's basically us. It was a Tuesday night, so she was doing what she had always done, just part of her routine. She had set herself up on the couch with her daughter's Barbie blanket. And side note, like we said before, um, her children were not with her, so she was alone at the time. And an apple as a snack. She remembered waking up to the blanket being smothered over her head as the ending credits theme song of Without a Trace played in the background. Her intruder punched her repeatedly in the head. He told her to be quiet. I need you to be quiet, he said. And she became so disoriented by the attack that she couldn't even scream if she wanted to. 
For the next three and a half hours, Lori was subjected to torture. She was blindfolded and shackled, just like the last woman was. The man wore a mask, but Lori would later state that she was so disoriented and confused by the blows to the head that she didn't know if she would be able to identify him even if he didn't. He forced her to pose for him in various states of undress, telling her to lean one way and bend another, all while holding a knife to her. Every time she hesitated to do something, he would threaten her by saying, don't make me make you. In an exclusive interview that she gave with Michael Frescalanti in 2010, Lori stated that her attack was like a horror movie. I thought he was going to kill me at any given moment, she said. It was like a horror movie. I didn't know what was going to happen in the next scene. During the attack, the man sexually assaulted Lori, taking pictures of that as well. When he believed he was finished, the man, without a word, fled the scene. Lori stayed blindfolded and bound to a chair for a while. She couldn't believe she survived and that he had just left. She was waiting to hear a car leave, but she never heard it. Eventually, thinking that he was gone, she was able to free herself from the chair and went to the phone. Still blindfolded, she called the police and told them that she had been sexually assaulted and that she needed them there. At just after 4.30 a.m., the residents of the cove were awakened by blue lights and police officers. The neighbors all came out and watched Lori get taken away in an ambulance. The first thing they thought was her ex. She had always fought with him, but Brian took it upon himself to ask the police what was going on. They told him that Lori had been attacked and that it was looking very similar to the situation on Cedar Street. Monique Murdoch could not believe the news. Her and her husband were trying to calm their daughter down, and now a woman two doors down had been attacked. So how can you calm her down after that? And you have to think, right? Like, okay, look what's happened so far. Could we be next? Like, could it escalate and could we be next? Right. Well, is is our daughter already a target because they have right. taken her stuff? Right. I mean, that's 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 some wild stuff. You that's know what I'm scary. saying? Like, I mean, you have to think, right? Well, these, this guy doesn't seem to care. So I can't see him stopping it, you know, two women or three women. It could it could be, the, for all we know, it could be the whole town right. at some point. It's small enough. He's really brazen. Right. It's odd, actually, because it seems like he kind of knows the area. And the reason why I say that is because he's not using a car mm-hmm. to, to our knowledge to this point. Correct. So I feel, I get this feeling that could he just know how to navigate, like, around the community, like, on foot, like, it's not he an could. easy task, right? Because, I mean, they're at a lake community. And there's lots of woods. Or he could woods. be parking far away. Could. He could be. But he also could not be. These very so, interesting things you bring up. I'm trying to think here. <laughs> so Lori spent a lot of time in the hospital and then with family after the attack. While she was away, the police had a lot of questions for the residents of Cozy Cove Lane. They wanted to know if they had seen anything. Because Lori mentioned something interesting in her story. She had not heard her assailant leave in a car. So this meant that either he left on foot through the woods or by boat. Oh, I didn't even think about boat. That's true. This was very unsettling. This meant that the assailant was either from the neighborhood or he, like you said at the very least, was just really familiar with it. All of the neighbors said none of them heard a boat motor and that it could be likely that he had left in a rowboat or just went to the other side of the cove to one of the other streets where a car may have been waiting. So there's still so many possibilities. So it could mean something that she didn't hear a car, or it could mean nothing. I always like to point out that so far, th- this is how this is where I'm going with it. 
I don't think it's a boat, a, a paddle boat. Let's okay. Like, reason being because why would you want to be sticking out like that? Let's say you were crossing the lake. Oh yeah, it would take a long. It would time. take a long yeah. time to cross it, and you never know who could be up looking out the window. I mean, with people on guard like the way they are, they're on edge, right? They're not gonna. You know, you don't want to risk that. You do, wouldn't want to be in a car because you're going to turn your lights on because you're doing this at night. And somebody's going to see your car in this small little town, right. this small little road here. Especially if they're not familiar with it. Exactly. So I don't think that because it's noise and it's light. You wouldn't want to stick out because you're going to be paddling across the lake. I'm thinking this person is on foot. and Okay. I, like... I'm getting this picture that he's just out in a, he has like a cabin somewhere out in the forest or something and just goes into town to do this. Oh, he's like Unabomber style? I guess, okay. yeah. Like, it's odd to me. But that's, right. that's what I'm picturing right now. Well, however he got there and whoever he was, the whole street was completely on edge. And people began to turn on each other. Monique Murdoch felt horrible for Lori. And she wanted to make her feel better. So she baked her a cake and headed over to her house. She told Lori that she was so sorry for what happened and she wanted her to know that her and her family were there for her if she ever needed anything. Lori told her a little bit about that night and what had happened. Monique asked her if she thought it might be her ex and Lori told her that she wanted it to be him because then she would at least know who did this to her and then she would maybe even try to understand she could understand why this happened right it's not just i mean it is a random act of violence but at least she would know her assailant i guess yeah yeah like, she would know her assailant at. and then she could be like you know you could rationalize it in your head yeah when you don't know it's probably harder to to deal with and try to understand well, it's hard to wrap your brain around some random dude just jumping through your window and, and doing this to you so right because it makes you scared yeah it does that it could happen again when it's someone you know, and there might have been an aggression and a reason, you could at least say and rationalize, okay, it was for a purpose. I'm not always in danger now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Lori said that the man that attacked her, she didn't know his hands and she didn't know his like mannerisms. So she definitely knew that it wasn't her ex, but she had been reliving the early morning attack over and over again. And she told Monique that something was bothering her. Um, what was bothering her most was that she knew the voice. The voice was familiar to her, and she thought that it was someone from the cove. Okay, so this is where the hysteria must come from. Yes. Okay. So now the victim is going to say, it's someone from this street. And now everyone is looking at each other with suspicion, and everyone's on the defense because well, you want to say, like, not my husband. Yeah. Okay. Right? All right. So who could it have been? Who committed these sexual assaults and break-ins? Was it Jack Fuller, the quiet neighbor, Ron Murdoch, the truck driver? You know, like he could be away, but he's not really away, like at work. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's why people were suspicious yeah. of him. Could it have been Lori's ex? Could it be Russ Williams, the military guy? Or could it be Brian, you know, the mayor of the cove, the guy with the personality? He thought he was in control of everything. Everyone seems like a pretty good suspect yeah like it belongs on some sort of show or something yeah you couldn't yeah. write this better yeah that, that's uh that's interesting actually so monique in particular felt as if brian was involved he was the first one to find out what was going on with Lori when she was taken away in an ambulance so he was pretty involved from the start she also had not always seen eye to eye with brian the murdoch's Brian and Lori were actually a few of the only people who lived on the cove full time. So for all the other families, 
that used the cottages as like vacation or weekend homes, they didn't really have to deal with Brian all the time. And someone who thinks they're in control of a certain area can be annoying and a lot to handle. So the Murdochs kind of knew more about his personality than the other people did. So they're like, their fuse was shorter when it came to Brian. Which is normal. Oh, yeah. So the Murdochs always felt like Brian was acting superior and they thought that maybe he felt like he was entitled to do these things. I could see why. I could see why you're they would be, you know, saying that. But cuz a sense of entitlement does come with just going into someone's home and going through their stuff and taking it and honestly not feeling any remorse or guilt about it because you know, that's just what they do. Yeah. I guess so. But, you know, like, going back to what uh, she said that she, like, the the voice was familiar. Well, you know what, though? You could make the argument that she could be talking about anybody from her past or her present. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody from the town. No, she's saying specifically she remembers hearing the voice from one of the block parties and stuff like that. Oh. So she's saying it's someone from the cove. All right. Through talking with people from the cove and from where all these break-ins were taking place... By mid-October, the police connected the two sexual assaults and break-ins with about 100 other reported breaking and enterings. That's a lot. Yeah, so whoever this is, very active. The police agreed that the best thing to do would be to let the people know that they were in danger. They informed the residents of the Belleville and Tweed area that the homes of young women were being broken into. That there were just under 100 reported B&Es, where the only items stolen were women's underwear. The police believed that the perpetrator was escalating, and the result of that was the two sexual assaults. So, what they're saying is, they believe that this man began breaking into people's homes, right? Right. Just breaking in, then stealing underwear, and then now he's moving forward to sexual assaults. So they're saying he's escalating. And these two sexual assaults happened within a few weeks of each other. So he's definitely amping up whatever he's doing. So women need to totally be made aware. Because later on, Lori is going to claim that she would not have left her. I mean, obviously, too. She wouldn't have left her windows open if the police would have made the public aware about the first attack. Because it was kind of a quiet thing. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, if people are prepared, even a little bit, try to... It could. It might prevent something from happening. Oh, 100%. But I mean, at the same time, the police don't really make so many things public because they don't want to cause mass panic. But now at this point, they did want the public to be panicking at least a little bit so they could protect themselves. So one week after the police notified the people in the area about break-ins, just around Halloween, the residents of Cozy Cove came home to find police cars and forensic trucks. They were all parked outside of Brian's house. Monique saw all of this when she came home from work. She had seen that Jack Fuller was home because his truck was in the driveway, so she decided to call him and ask him what was happening. He told her that the police had taken Brian in. Lori told them that it was Brian, he said. Monique was surprised that Lori had this revelation, so she called her. She asked her what she remembered and what happened. Lori told Monique that it just came to her. She knew she had heard the voice before on the cove, and Brian was always calling and asking her how she was, and it was starting to get annoying to her. So it just clicked. It had to have been him. Wait, so 
Brian is calling Lori, Lori every day and asking her how she is. Okay, and then she's rethinking about what happened to her. And she's hearing the voice. And then she puts two and two together while on the phone. Correct. That this is the dude that did this to me. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. See, that's See, that's wild. That is very unique. It's super rare to happen. Think about that. No, I know. You remember a voice because, you know, you, you were so disoriented that you don't remember what the person looked like. But you remember their voice. And then you're on the phone and you're like, holy, holy crap, I'm crap. talking to this guy. This is, the, this is the guy right here. Yes. That's that's insane. So police brought him in for questioning and they also got a warrant to search his house and his vehicle. So that happened on a Friday night when Brian got arrested. And like they did many weekends, the Murdochs, the Williams, and the Fullers, they had planned to get together for a game night. So they kind of like said, all right, let's all get together anyway to like talk to. Like we shouldn't not get together. So the conversation really stayed on what had been happening and the fact that Brian had been brought in for questioning from the authorities. I mean, of course. That's of course what you're going to talk about. I mean, Kay, you would love that. I, yes. You yes. would love that. And you know what? Honestly, I'd love it too. I mean, if it, if it was a good enough story, hell yeah. Well, that's what we think. We think our neighbors, there's going to be some type of violence that goes down with our neighbors. Oh, well, we'll get a, you know, we got a front row seat, so. Yeah, we are ready. So Miranda was very upset by this whole ordeal, of course, right? Because she now can put a face to the person that she thinks went into her room at night and stole her her underwear so it was difficult to know that someone she trusted was a man that came into her room at least three times while she was sleeping no less i mean he could have done something to her so russ williams was just trying to make the girl feel better so he decided to like you know play card games with her while the others talked eventually once the children went to bed the parents began talking again and russ's wife mary said that she never trusted brian and that she had always been suspicious of him the entire time Ron Murdoch brought up the fact that he didn't think it could be Brian. Brian's in his early 50s and he was just about 250 pounds. It just didn't sound like the guy that the cops explained. Right, and you gotta think it's true. I mean, this guy has to be pretty, like, agile, right? Right. Look, I'm I'm pretty big myself. I couldn't be hopping in, in and out of windows. Yeah, like being really stealthy I mean, about it. Let's let's be real. I mean, I mean, listen. You can do whatever you put your mind to, John. <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> But, but no, it's true, though. I mean, he is in his 50s, and nothing against people who are in their 50s, but, like, you're you're not as graceful, like, if you were in your 20s. I, so, yes. you know, I, that and the fact that he's 250, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it'd be a little hard to go in and out like that. I would I would agree. But, once again, though, anything is possible. It's true. Maybe he's an Olympic athlete. We don't know. So yes. yes. Maybe, maybe he's, he's been training. Yeah. You never know. So, Jack Fuller disagreed, though, and he said that he knew for a fact that it was Brian. Russ Williams is going to cut in, and he said he didn't think it was Brian who did it. He wouldn't have been capable. And he actually called Brian a fat idiot. Ooh. Yeah, yes, he did. But Russ Williams is going to say that he believes that they should trust in the police. So whether or not Brian did it, the police would find out in the end. So they should just kind of like hang tight and see what was going to happen. So just as the conversation turned to something else, the doorbell rang. When Monique opened the door, it was Brian. Okay. All right. (laughs) He told them that the police had released him and he was cleared of everything. Nothing had been found in his house and he had an alibi for both attacks. He had even passed a lie detector test. 
So in this moment now, right, Detective John here, I'm thinking that the one of the dudes that are sitting at this little function mm-hmm. is the one that, that I think it's the person that called him a big dumb idiot. Okay. I'm Russ gonna t- Williams. I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Because, right, if you have done all these things, you have, you know, you know, you're breaking and entering, you're doing all these sexual assaults and stuff. There's like this weird ego that you must have. A pride in like your a pride, work. You know, yeah. So you don't want people to think, oh, this dumb clown, you know, is taking credit for what I've done. That's what I'm thinking in my head. Mm, that's a very psychological way of looking yeah. at it, Detective John. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that one of those people are like, no, you didn't do it. He's a dumb idiot. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so Monique invited him in and he shared the information with the rest of the group. The thought around the table was, well, here we are back to square one. Someone still did this and they were on the loose. So it kind of just put everyone back on edge again. The profile that the Canadian police gave was true. This person, whichever resident it was from Cozy Cove, was only escalating. One month later, a woman was found murdered. And one month after that, another woman went missing. It seemed very likely that these attacks turned into murder. These new attacks paralyzed the community with fear. So police set up checkpoints in and out of Tweed. As before the last woman went missing, it was reported that a gray truck sat in her driveway for hours and then went missing. There was also tread marks left on her gravel driveway. A few days later, on February 7th, 2010, the residents of Cozy Cove came home to blue lights again. And this time, they were parked in front of the Williams house. All the residents waited, anxious to hear news about what was going on. The last time anyone showed interest in the cases, the last time anyone showed interest in these cases, they had been arrested. So everyone just hung tight. Everyone was terrified that something could have happened to Mary Williams. But hours into waiting, Monique Murdoch received a call. It was from Mary. She told her neighbor, it's Russ. He's in custody and he confessed to everything. So I was right. You were right. (laughs) It was the military guy who like called him like a big fat idiot because of course you're right. Like that's his ego. Like no way that guy could never do what I did. Right. See, I'm I'm pretty good sometimes. (laughs) So the police had stopped him during a road check as he was leaving the Air Force Base because his truck was a match for the vehicle that was seen in the driveway of Jessica Lloyd's house the missing woman. They checked his tread and took down his name, phone number, and license number. He got a phone call later that day to head to the Ottawa police station. Once he got there, they told him that his tire tread was a match. So they asked for his shoes, hair, and a DNA sample. It was all a match. It was a match for the DNA not only found at Jessica Lloyd's house, but the first murder victim's house and the two sexual assaults. And this is when Russell Williams confessed it all. So first he confessed to the many break-ins in the areas where he stole women's underwear. So there was just about 100 break-ins. Each time was different, he explained. He always knew if the person was home or not. If they were home, he would grab the underwear and leave. He had practiced this in his own neighborhood. See, we know that with Monique and Miranda Murdoch. Sometimes if the people were not home, he would take his time to try on the underwear and photograph himself in it. Great. So this guy has um, a sadistic Victoria's Secret collection. Yes. Because this guy's just collecting underwear and putting them on. Yes. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. That's, Great. That's what he does. 
So these break-ins are going to occur not only in the Cozy Cove Tweed area, but around the area of his other home in Orleans. So he... Cozy Cove is his like weekend house. His other condo, which is worth like $700,000 and the Cozy Cove house is worth like around one sixty. Um, he The break-ins happen in both locations. Okay, so they're trying to figure out who's doing this in both areas. And it was all tied wow. together. Okay. Mm-hmm. On some of those occasions, he took entire drawers of women's underwear. I mean, this guy's... Entire um, drawers. What, what is going yeah. on? So he also confessed to the two sexual assaults that took place, the one on Cedar Street and the other on Cozy Cove Lane. He then got to the murders. So the accounts of what took place during these murders is going to come from two sources. The confessions of Russell Williams, which you can see on YouTube, um, we'll link them in the show notes, and courtroom testimony. I do want to preface this by saying that the details of these two attacks and murders are extremely graphic. And as always, we say that we've made the decision when we started to do this show to include these details because I feel like passing them over doesn't do justice to the victims that had to suffer through them. If this ever happened to me, I'd want the world to know what this monster of a man did and I, I'd want it to be considered in not only his sentencing, but if he were ever to come up for parole. And not to mention, I feel like it does the case justice to know because you yes. really understand in its entirety what, how, took place. what took place and how much of a disgusting human being this guy is. Exactly. So I also want to point out, and this is something that makes the case all the more heartbreaking, is that these details were also heard by the families of the victims in open court during Russell Williams' sentencing. So as you can imagine, there were times when it was difficult for them to not have outbursts of emotions And during the court trial, they had to be warned several times from the judge to not show these emotions. Um, Not because, I mean, obviously, usually that's the the case when like a jury is there, but it was just like distracting from the court. Right. Okay. Russell Williams stated that he met Corporal Marie France Como on a military flight where he was her commanding officer. He found her attractive. And as her commanding officer, he had access to personal information like her address, phone number, and when she was scheduled to be on base or away from home. He broke into her house twice. The first time he parked about 700 feet away in a wooded area, and knowing that she was on a trip, he broke in by getting through her basement window that was located in the back of the house. He stayed in her house for hours, trying on her underwear and taking pictures of himself. He took 18 photographs of himself modeling her underwear and placing sex toys that he had found in her underwear. He also learned something very important from this trip. The young woman lived alone. When she returned from the trip, Marie France noticed that someone had gone through her underwear drawer. She asked her boyfriend if he was the one who did it, and he, of course, denied this. On November 24th, 2009, Williams broke in again. It was sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. He shut off his Blackberry and climbed through the same basement window. This time he had a duffel bag with him. He hid for 30 to 40 minutes in her basement, near her furnace. He waited for Marie France to go to sleep. However, she began looking for her cat instead of going to bed. The cat that was perched right in front of Williams, staring at the intruder. Marie France finally found her cat 
in the basement. And when she did, she noticed that there was a man in a mask in the shadows. Panicked, Williams struck her on the head with a red flashlight he was holding. Blood drops were found on the basement floor, confirming that this took place. The scuffle then moved across the basement. This is when Marie France tried to escape, but fell to the ground. A blood stain was found on the basement floor that was consistent with a bloody hairprint where she must have fallen. There was also two footprints in the blood. She was then tied up with clothing to a jack post in the basement, and this is known because a pin from the post was imprinted into her wrist. Williams took two still images showing her in the position that he had her in at 12.29 a.m. She only had a small blanket covering her naked body. He then went upstairs into her bedroom and used knives that he found in her kitchen to hold up a sheet over her bedroom window. He then took the bulbs out of all the nightlights in the house. He went down to get Marie France and bring her upstairs. But the 38-year-old military woman was going to put up a fight as evident by the dents in the wall near the stairs. However, Williams was able to overpower her, and he carried her semi-conscious body up the stairs and brought her to her bedroom. He removed the duct tape that was placed over her mouth and her hands. He then took four more photographs. Then, over the next two hours, he sexually assaulted and raped her. The attack was videotaped. At one point during the attack, he went to check out her front window in the living room because she thought that she heard someone approaching. On the videotape, investigators saw Marie France get up from the bed and r- try to run towards her bedroom ensuite. Williams heard her running and chased her down and struck her repeatedly. This was all filmed. He then tried to suffocate her with a pillow and she tried to fight him off. And she can be heard yelling, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. At this point, she was bound with duct tape again, and the sexual assaults continued for another two hours, it all being videotaped. Marie France pleaded with her attacker. She told him that she didn't deserve to die and that she would not tell anyone if he just let her live. Finally, she asked him to please have a heart, but he took her life. He then began trying to clean the house to remove his DNA. He took photos of himself using bleach to clean the sheets. Marie France's boyfriend found her body, naked, on her bed the next day. He went looking for her after she was not responding to his text messages or phone calls and not arriving at the restaurant where they had dinner plans. That's really sad. And it's, it's, you know what makes that worse? The fact that it's videotaped. I think that makes it a hell of a lot worse. With his escalation, he chose to not only photograph victims but videotape it. So, I mean, that does go into a premeditation of the plan of murder that that's what was going to take place and the cause of death ended up being strangulation next williams confessed about the murder of 27 year old jessica elizabeth lloyd williams told investigators that he first noticed jessica when he drove past her house one day he had seen her through her window running on her treadmill he chose to break into the young woman's home on january 29th he waited in her backyard for her to go to sleep He then entered in through her bedroom window. He woke her at knife point and bound her with rope and placed duct tape over her face. He forced her to model her own lingerie as he took pictures of her. After three hours of a sexual assault and rape, which was videotaped and photographed, he did something he had never done before. He forced her at knife point to get into his vehicle. 
He kept telling her that he would let her go if she just cooperated with him. He blindfolded her and drove her to his home on Cozy Cove Lane. Once she was there, he made her shower. Williams said that he let her sleep for a few hours. When she woke, she had a seizure. He had begun videotaping. The seizure did not stop Williams from standing Jessica up and dressing her while she convulsed. When the seizures ended, she cried, begging that she didn't want to die and that she needed to go to the hospital. Williams did not respond to any of this. As he pulled the sweater over her head, she said, If I die, will you make sure my mom knows that I love her? It was this that obviously triggered the Lloyd family. An audible Jesus was heard from them as others wept loudly. One more sexual attack ensued, and then Williams killed Jessica Lloyd by hitting her on the head with a flashlight and then strangling her with a rope. The tape ended there. Yeah. That whole thing was videotape. Investigators watched it, but they advised the families not to. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would advise them to do, you know, to not watch it. I mean, it's that. That it's, was so hard to get through. Yeah, I, I see, and I, I, you know what? Honestly, it's, it's like, it's one of those things where, once again, you know, it's hard to hear even through the podcast. But I mean, it, I, it really shows how callous and how just like he just didn't give a fuck. No. And and that is there was nothing that was going to stop him. And sometimes it's like you, you, if you don't know this part of it. And we just skimmed over it, you wouldn't know how bad he was. Exactly. Like in the beginning, when I first explained it, because I didn't want to go into detail, because then it would have been obvious who it was. But at first, when we said there was a murder and then a missing girl, that's so different than the details we just gave you. Yeah. And and that does justice to the victims. And that's why the details are included. But even though the tape ended there, we do know the actions of Williams after that because of his confession. He left Jessica's body in the cottage on Cozy Cove, and he drove back to the Air Force Base to spend the night. He had an early flight to California the next morning, so this is why he went to the base. He returned late the next night, and he dumped Jessica's body in a field on Cary Road in Tweed. Now, this gave police the information they were looking for, as when Williams was arrested, Jessica Lloyd was still missing. They didn't know what had happened to her. Williams, as he confessed pleaded guilty to all the charges amassed in front of him. He said that this was to protect his wife from any further stress and to not build up a large legal bill. During the sentencing, not only did the details of the two murders come out, but so did the two sexual assaults. During the trial, both women of the sect that had the sexual assaults committed prior to the two murders, they had wanted to stay anonymous. It was in 2010 that Lori Masakati chose to break her silence and come out as a victim of Russell Williams in order to help and encourage other victims of sexual assault. Monique Murdoch also testified against Russell Williams, explaining that he had betrayed their family's trust and he was brought in as a friend and a guest. They allowed him to play with their daughter all the while he was breaking into her room and stealing her underwear from them. Yeah, that's pretty sick. Yeah really sick the canadian military worked to immediately expel williams from the canadian forces his medals have since been removed and his pay since his arrest had been taken back and it's for this reason plus because he doesn't deserve it that i have not said anything about his military career because i'm sure the canadian military forces do not want to claim russell williams as their own of course, and it, and it, just like you said, we're not going to paint this guy uh, in any positive in, light whatsoever. Absolutely not. So thousands of pictures were found by police of Williams wearing women's clothing, 
mostly all of it stolen he had drawers and drawers filled with women's underwear um and bathing suits like duffel bags of of clothing and also pictures and videotapes so this brought into question just how much william's wife knew about what her husband was doing um but we do also have to keep in mind that that is all speculation plus the couple did have two homes so it could allow for but i I, that is still up in the air we'll get into that a little bit later because Williams pled guilty to first-degree murder in the cases of both Jessica Lloyd and Marie France, as well as forcible confinement and sexual assault on the other two victims in 82 counts of breaking and entering or attempted breaking and entering. He was sentenced by a judge to two life terms in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. So in 2035, he will be eligible. But based on the details and the crimes and the record of those crimes, I would say that he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. After this trial, three lawsuits have been brought in against Mary Harriman, the former wife of Russell Williams. The first plaintiff was the victim of the first sexual assault, who still remains anonymous. So the um, lawsuit was officially brought by Jane Doe. The second was brought by Lori Masicotti and the third by Jessica Lloyd's family. They all claim that Harriman sold the properties, um, which will eventually amass to $860,000 in an allegedly fraudulent post-arrest deal designed to shield all of Williams' assets from potential litigation. So basically just that she gained financially from her husband's illegal actions. Um, I mean, look, I listen, I understand completely. I yeah. get that part. I would just say that even though he is the murderer and the disgusting human being that he is, that doesn't necessarily mean that his wife has to suffer when maybe his wife didn't know anything. Let's just say, for argument's sake, the wife doesn't know anything. Right. Is it fair to leave her out on the street with nothing? Well, Masakati actually in her lawsuit is going to claim that Harriman knew about her husband's actions oh. and didn't alert authorities. Okay, and that's see that's that's the flip side. If that is the case, then by all means go for it. Take it all. Go for it. Well, of course all these claims were denied. Harriman through her lawyers denied all knowledge, but of course her silence fueled rumors and speculation. How could it not? However, in recently released court documents, it stated that Harriman was devastated about hearing of her husband's victims, and she believed that she too was a victim of his double life. After finding out about this, she lost 25 pounds, and after consulting a psychologist, she filed for divorce and left the country during his sentencing trial. Um, It's, you know, it's very bizarre. We don't know if she knew about this. I think it's... um, It all depends. Her husband was also in the military. So his leaving to be on base is something, and his traveling, especially because it was the Air Force, was something that happened all the time. So was he gone a lot? Yes. Could some of those things been other things that he was doing? But I also don't know how over two years, over 100 breaking and enterings, that you don't suspect something. Yeah, listen, I I think you're onto something. I think that... To say that she doesn't know anything is kind of a stretch, but also to for you to, for anybody to say that you know she she didn't know any like anything at all. I think in her heart she knew something was up, but it could right. have been like maybe he's cheating on me or, well, or something. I honestly believe 
There's some slight differences, but I find there to be a lot of similarities between Russell Williams and BTK, right? He was still this family man. He still had this career, but then at the same time, he liked taking pictures of himself in women's clothing. There was strangulation to his um, murders, and there was also sexual assaults that took place. So I think the two are very similar. And in that case, and in the case of other serial killers as well, there's a blissful ignorance that the wives of these men sometimes have. Like, my husband's going to tell me not to go into the garage. I'm not going to even ask what's in there. You know what right. I mean? But it's so- also, it could also be their dynamic in their relationship. And I'm not saying all military people are like this, but if he is a certain way about him, right? Right. That would give you... Don't go into my don't, things. Don't go into my yeah. things. Hey, you know, this is my, these are my rules, you know. He was definitely a very dominant personality. I think this came through even in his... Um, attacks yeah. where he was very sadomasochistic and that may have translated into his relationship with his wife as well. You're right. Yeah. So to end this in a very weird twist of events, the cottage in which the Williams family lived sold for $165,000 to the Murdoch family. So the Murdochs bought it. They bought the house. They stated that they didn't want the street to be painted in a bad light or anyone to look at the house and see the bad things that happened. That, just like that house, the community was trying to start anew and move forward. The funds were held until the settlement of the three lawsuits, um, which together, the lawsuits were over $11 million against Mary Harriman. So... Those are going to, they settle that privately and both sides have never talked about what the amount was. But yes, the Murdochs bought the house. Yeah. I mean, I understand. I could see why they did it. Right. But I would never buy a house where something that tragic took place. Absolutely not. Out of, um, I would say out of respect for what happened to Jessica Lloyd in that house, that they should just tear that house down. <laughs> yeah. Like just not do anything with it. I, yeah. I, it's just creepy. It would be creepy. It would be creepy to it me would be too. Creepy. I um, mean, I couldn't. I couldn't sleep at night knowing that that no, no, that no. took place there, and I'm sleeping in the house. Yeah, that's terrifying. And honestly, and I feel you like know it's a what? Insulting too. What else might have happened there? I mean, we still don't know. I mean, obviously, Russell Williams doesn't claim any more victims, but I mean, you never really know what went down in that house. The juju in it. I just would not buy oh, that. Oh, yeah, no. Ron Murdoch liked the house, though, to begin with. Like, when he would have conversations with Russell Williams, he said, you guys have the property that we want. Like, because it, it is a really nice property with, like, prime location to the lake. Yeah. You know, I can see the intrigue, but once again. But, oh, my God, you're living nope. in a house where someone was murdered. That yeah. poor girl. And it was videotaped. And you know what? You know the details of what took place. And I just think that that's... I wouldn't be able to go into my basement. It's tasteless. I, I just, I couldn't, yeah. I just couldn't do it. This is the one time we're going to take a stance and say, uh, it's probably a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, even if I could We try it, to stay neutral. We try. We try to stay neutral. Yeah. So. All right. So what we want to do now is we want to say thank you to all of our Patreons for the month of May. So we know that we might have mentioned some of these people in the past podcast, but we just want to give like the whole month of May a shout out because we're so grateful to all of you that have joined the Patreon family. So those Patreons are Ariana McLovin. I like that. Let's see what you did there. Deborah Turpin, Julia Macias, Dorothy C., Jennifer Kaysen, Dominica, Elizabeth Becker, Ellie Latouche, Catherine Frey, 
Abigail Egerton, Liz Ochoa upped her pledge to $5, Morgan, Savannah Franklin upped her pledge to $20. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And Savannah is also in the process of starting her own podcast. And once it's ready, we can't wait to tell you about it. Crystal Slaughter, Michelle Smith, Jessica Tucker, Tracy Boiso upped her pledge to $5, Pat Baymont, Robin Grady, Shy, Danielle Morrison, Amy Levicu, Hannah Noling, Mike Sellis upped his pledge, Brittany L., Shanoa Liefelt, Al Ridley, Juliana, Meredith Cobb, Sarah Hatfield, Jenny Martin, Amanda Walsh, Shayna Duquette, Ginger Corneo, Rebecca Hensley, Trinity Walsh, and Tara Hines. Thank you guys so much for your Patreon pledges, and we really appreciate it. Yes, thank you guys. We just want to let Patreons know that an episode will be out Friday for you guys, and we can't wait to bring it to you. And if you'd like to join Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.